Hey, welcome to Bullpen Sessions, where you will learn the lessons from the athletes excelling at the highest level so you can take these same lessons and apply them to your sport, business, and life. My name is Andy Neary, and each week I sit down with current and former pro athletes and other professionals tied to the sports world where we dive into the mindset of those athletes excelling at the highest level, teaching you lessons you can apply so you can have massive success in your sport, business, and life. So do me a favor, grab your glove, grab a ball, take the mound, because you are about to strike out those limiting beliefs that have been holding you back oh so long. Here we go. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Bullpen Sessions. All right, if you are a baseball fan, buckle up. You are going to love this episode. I had the fortunate opportunity and the pleasure to have Jeff Montgomery, former closer of the Kansas City Royals, join me uh, for one fantastic conversation. If Again, if you're a baseball fan, I hope you remember Jeff from the 90s. If you don't, let me just read a few of his accomplishments for you. Number one, uh, he spent more than 12 years as a closer at the major league level between the Reds and the Royals, which is unheard of nowadays. Uh, he is the all-time Royals saves leader with 304 saves. He's in the Royals Hall of Fame. He was a three-time All-Star and he won the AL Fireman of the Year Award in 1993, leading the AL with 45 saves. I wanted to have Jeff on because Jeff is the definition of that undersized pitcher. Jeff was 5'11", 170 pounds. He did not throw 98 miles an hour. He had people telling him in college and at the minor leagues that it was going to be very tough for him to make it. However, by showing up every single day, by being consistent, by building a brand of you know exactly what you're going to get from Jeff every single day and he's going to leave it out on the field, I got the opportunity to share the stats, the accomplishments I just shared with you. So again, this was an absolute honor. We dive into so many topics, the mindset of a closer, what it was like for him to switch from a starting role in college to that relief, that closing role in the minor leagues, what it takes to have a successful 12, 13-year run as a closer at the major league level. And we even have some conversations about some of his teammates like Bo Ryan, Bob Boone, and Paul Splittorf. So buckle up. Again, if you're a baseball fan, you do not want to miss this episode. Hey, if you have any children who are baseball players, whether they're in the little, um, uh, little leagues, high school, college, pass this episode on to them. I think they're going to learn so much from Jeff in this episode. So buckle up, take some notes. Here we go. Shift your mindset. All right, Jeff Montgomery with the Kansas City Royals. How are you doing? Well, Andy, I'm doing well considering the circumstances, but uh, the fact that spring training is underway and baseball season is around the corner, I feel pretty refreshed, pretty excited, and hopefully we're going to play 162 this year after an abbreviated 2020. And uh, the more, more baseball we have, the closer we are to getting our lives back to normal. So I think it's all a good sign. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Jeff. You know, quick backstory for everybody listening in. I'm excited to have Jeff. Um, you're going to, if you don't know about Jeff Montgomery, if you're a baseball fan, you absolutely know about Jeff Montgomery. Um, he pitched in the major leagues from what, Jeff, about 87 to 88 to 99? 87 with the Reds and 88 to 99 with the Royals the last 12 seasons there in Kansas City. And now I'm doing some television work uh, in Kansas City. Have been, I think this is my 13th season. So baseball has been part of my life and continues to be. 
Awesome. And so I'm excited to have you because you are the story. You know, I, I, I had a colleague of yours on a couple of weeks ago, Joel Goldberg, and we were, we were talking about your story a little bit on, on the broadcast about the undersized pitcher who overcame the odds. You was told, man, it's going to be tough for you to make it all the way you did. You ended up being the all-time saves leader with the Kansas City Royals. So that's the story I want to talk about with you and just kind of your journey from you know, Billings, Montana, as we talked about uh, offline to getting that break in the majors, that trade for Van Snyder uh, that that landed you in, in Kansas City. And then the rest is history. At that point, you became the all time saves leader with the Kansas City Royals. So, Jeff, for the few people out there who are baseball fans that may not remember who Jeff Montgomery is, why don't you maybe just tell us where you grew up, that story about that Ohio kid that that made big. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I you know loved sports, played baseball, football, basketball, and you know just kind of a year-round you know seasonal sports guy. And you know, baseball being a spring sport, uh, I wanted to play college football or baseball. Baseball was tops on my list. Uh, had a good football career in high school, but you know, being an undersized guy, a guy you know wasn't a blazer. Football wasn't really. The, you know, the sport that was going to be most likely, uh, you know, on my resume at some point. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Ohio, and uh, but fortunately, uh, I was able to hold on till the end of my senior season and uh, end up getting a scholarship to Marshall University, which is in West Virginia, uh, about 100 miles from the little town I grew up in Ohio. But uh, end up uh, after my junior year, which was not a good season for me statistically, I ended up getting drafted by the Reds, a team that I grew up following. Uh, you know, being a kid who grew up during the red machine era, the big red machine era, it was just a dream come true. And I honestly thought, you know, Cincinnati, a hundred mile drive down the road from, uh, from where I grew up in Wellston, Ohio, you know, it's going to be a pretty quick trip. And, uh, I was excited about, you know, playing riverfront stadium someday and gosh, little did I know. And I was very naive at the time that my hundred mile journey was going to take me five years, <laughs> but, uh, you know, along the way I had some really good people in my corner. Uh, I, I probably go back to my my rookie season in Billings. My manager was Mark Bombard. Uh, he was an undersized lefty, and uh, he was my manager and essentially converted me from a starting pitcher, which I'd been my entire life, to a relief pitcher first day of our little mini camp in, uh, I guess it was either June or July of 1983 there in Billings. And um, the one thing that I remember him talking to me about was the fact that, hey, you're going to have a lot of obstacles to overcome because of your size. And I, you know, I threw 88 miles an hour. So I wasn't a blazer. I wasn't a guy I could, you know, throw that marshmallow through the stop sign. I was a guy that had to really, uh, you know, work on uh, tricking hitters and mixing my pitches up and so on and so forth. But he told me one thing that stood out to me and he said, you work hard every day to become a better baseball player. And I think you have the mindset, you know, to overcome those obstacles, uh, regardless of your, you know, five foot 10, uh, 175 pound stature, you know, you have uh, the ability to command a baseball, you have the ability to spin a baseball, uh, even though you can't overpower anyone, you you have some ability on the mound with, uh, you know, setting up your pitches. So, uh, you know, playing at the rookie ball level and learning that, I, I really kind of took it to heart. And uh, I decided I'm going to do one thing every day mm-hmm. for the rest of my baseball career to become a better player. So, you know, the old saying, you know, the little things add up to big things. 
And that's really what I was able to do. And it may be, you know, doing some extra work in the weight room. It may be, you know, getting in that uh, hallway at my house in front of the mirror, working on my pickoff move. It may mean, you know, uh, you know, working on a better change up. I mean, just there's an array of things you can do to improve. And uh, I just started doing that on a daily basis and really became obsessed and, and focused on doing something every day to become better. And uh, during that period of time, uh, that five years it took me to you know make that trip from uh, Wellston, Ohio, down the road to Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. It all you know became worthwhile once I put on that uniform for the first time. I walked up the tunnel from the clubhouse, and I you know walk on the Riverfront Stadium field, the field that I'd gone to dozens of times as a kid to watch the Reds play. Now I'm wearing a Reds uniform and playing for my favorite player of all time, Pete Rose, who was my first major league manager. You know, I, there's so many things to unwrap from that that story, that journey, Jeff. One that speaks right to my heart is, you know, I had the chance to play in the Brewers organization. I grew up 30 miles outside of Milwaukee. So having that chance to go play uh, for the team you grew up watching had to be just absolutely unreal for you. The question I want to know, and it was a struggle I had. So I was a starting pitcher my whole life. All the way through college, I get to the Brewers organization, and I wasn't a high draft pick. And as you know, the high draft picks usually other starters. I had to, I, I had to resort to middle relief. In your case, you went to relief to close role. Where did where do you feel like your mindset had to shift a little bit to go from the guy starting the game, knowing you have maybe a longer runway, to the guy who comes in and has to get the job done right away? Well, I think really kind of two things came into to play there. One was the physical side of it. Uh, as a starting pitcher, I remember, you know, in high school and college, I'd start a game and I, I don't know, you know, if they ever even had pitch counts that they really live by too much back then. But, you know, I, I remember I'd, I'd pitch, you know, seven, eight, nine innings, whatever it would be. And then for a couple of days, it was hard for me to even play catch. I mean, my my arm was tired and was sore and achy. You know, my elbow would would, would be barking. And uh, I that's why I was a little reluctant on accepting the offer, you know, to, to convert to a relief pitcher. Uh, cause I just didn't know how my arm would respond, but then, you know, from the physical aspect, it really responded well. In fact, I felt like I probably, uh, had a liver arm. I was mm -hmm. able to, um, uh, you know, maybe get a little more life on the baseball. Uh, so, you know, the physical aspect played favorably for me, uh, from the mental side, I like going to the ballpark every day, putting on a uniform, knowing I have a chance to be in a baseball game. And in, in college, you know, it's a little different because you're playing, you know, sometimes three or four days a week and it's not a grind like pr playing professionally, but playing professionally, essentially seven days a week uh, for a starting pitcher. If you don't have the, you know, the luxury of, uh, you know, being at the country club on the four days you're not starting, <laughs> you know, it's 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 to me, it would have been a real grind. Uh, I had I did have the experience uh, of being a starting pitch for about a year in the minor leagues. And it was so totally different for me as far as the preparation. Uh, you know, I'm looking at, you know, uh, going out and, 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 and throwing, you know, six, seven, eight innings as a starting pitcher uh, and, and, and trying to find ways to, to get through that lineup more than one time. But as a relief pitcher for me, especially as a late inning guy, you know, I'm focused on getting three outs or six outs, however many outs I have to get to get that last out. I always said, you know, as, as, as a closer, my job is to be a professional handshaker. <laughs> and what I want to do is I want to be shaking my teammates' hands at the end of the game because that means that some 
you know, some fashion, we were able to get that last out of the game with, and still have the lead on the scoreboard. And uh, that's why I really enjoyed being that professional handshaker because most of the time, uh, you know, it's, it's something that gives you that thrill uh, of throwing that last pitch of the game and getting that very last out of the game. You know, um, you talked about not having that. When you're a starter, those three or four days, you're not the guy on the mound. You can go to the country club, enjoy a little bit more. When you're in the bullpen, you have to be ready every single game. And, you know, if my research is correct, I think you ended your career at 700 games that you appeared in, which is, guys, if you're listening in, 700 games <laughs> appeared in, in a major league career is absolutely insane. Um, take us into the game for a second. So as a closer, you know, when you're out in the bullpen, you might even did you start the game in the dugout or were you the kind of guy that was always out in the bullpen once once the first inning no i felt like uh, i owed it to my teammates to be there for nine innings okay i would you know i my goal was to be out for the national anthem i probably made it out for the national anthem 99.9 percent time there may have been a time or two that i couldn't but i wanted to be there uh, to see that starting pitcher leave the bullpen. I, went, I wanted him to know that, hey, we're, we got our eye on you tonight. We're here to back you if you need it. Um, go out and, and, and give us all you got for as long as you got. We got six or seven guys out here going to you know cover whatever you need for us to cover for you. But I always felt like it's important to be there for the first pitch of the game. I like that. Uh, and and the, the one thing I learned after a while was it was important to not stay laser focused for nine innings. And if you know you're going to be out there maybe in the seventh inning or the eighth inning or the ninth inning, whatever it is, it takes a little time to get yourself laser focused. But I, I felt like doing it for, you know, watching 250 pitches during the course of the game with that, you know, that adrenaline, it just didn't play out well for me. It kind of wears you out to me mentally. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I'd be out as excited for the first pitch of the game. And then I would kind of go into the, the mode where I'm almost like a fan. I'm watching. I might be learning some things. I might be talking, uh, you know, to my my bullpen coach or some of my other uh, bullpen mates out there about, you know, how are we going to, uh, you know, get this guy out tonight? He's been he's been on fire hot. He he owns most all of us. You know, how are we going to get this guy out? If he comes up in a big situation at eighth inning, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this guy out? So, you know, you learn a little bit by just talking and 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 you know sharing experiences. But I mean, I'll share a story with you. People find this kind of funny. I would always, you know, say the third, fourth, and fifth inning of the game, uh, I would try to relax as much as I could. And in Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, uh, right up from the bullpen, there's a tunnel that goes out to the parking lot. And a few of us would park our cars in that tunnel. And I remember one night, I'm out, I, I, I'm listening on the radio, and I'm out, I, I'm, I've taken my jersey off. Uh, got my T-shirt on, and I'm I'm actually waxing my car, okay. <laughs> and our general manager, our general manager, whose name was Herc Robinson, he's on a golf cart coming down to visit with the groundskeeper, whose office is right there by our bullpen. And he stops and he says, he goes, Monty, he goes, do you mind me asking what you're doing? I said, well, I'm waxing my car, Herc. He goes, he goes, is the game going on? I go, yeah, we're you know we're winning three to one. It's a, you know third inning, whatever. I, you know, he goes, he goes, you do this very often. I go, not really. I said, just when my car needs to be waxed. And so he proceeds. He goes, okay, it seems like it works okay for you. I guess you'll be ready in the ninth inning if we need you. But yeah, that was you know my way of uh, just kind of getting away from the you know, that laser focus of the game and and kind of being a fan. I'm listening on the radio and cheering for my guys. And you know, and, and then you know, once the game progresses and it gets in like in a sixth, seventh inning. 
especially as a closer, you have a pretty good idea. You know, if it's a five to four game or six to three game, uh, you know, in the seventh inning and you got the lead, there's a pretty good chance you're going to maybe see some action in that game. And that's when mentally I started to focus. That's when I could just tell my body started to change. You know, I started to get that little nervous energy and the adrenaline started, you know, pouring out a little bit. And then by the time you get on the mountain and do your warm-ups, I mean, you're ready to go. You're you're locked in. You know who's going to be coming up in the next inning. And and that's when, to me, I was able to really kind of harness all of that energy and, and, and then take it onto the mound. I think that's so important you said what you said, because especially I've never been a closer in my life, but if you were, if you are a closer and you try to stay focused all the way through, you could probably almost um, stress yourself out. I think mentally you would wear yourself out. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the question I have, because I think there's people who listen would love to know this. Baseball players are superstitious, right? We're, we're creatures of habit. When would you, so knowing Matt, take, take us through that game Royals up three, one, three, two, seventh, eighth inning, you know, you're probably coming in. When would you really get locked in about starting a routine to get ready? And then did you have a routine that you would go through to get yourself ready in the bullpen? Yeah, I had a routine. Actually, it started in the afternoon. It started with like you know some physical stuff. I was a big runner. I always felt like being a small guy. If I had strong legs, it could really be a huge advantage to me. So I I, I would do a lot of leg work and a lot of abdominal work. It was back then. It was you know it was running distance and doing sit ups. I mean that was the way that we conditioned ourselves. We didn't use weights. We didn't do the typical stuff you see a lot of players and teams doing today. But, you know, my, my routine started early in the day and people felt like I was superstitious because I had to run at four o'clock. But it really wasn't because of superstition. I just learned from experience how my body reacted uh, and what kind of recovery time I needed. So if I would run at four o'clock and if I'm not going to pitch till 930 or 10, I had ample time to get myself physically ready to be 100% when I went to the game. So, uh, you know, it started then, but as far as the game is concerned, you know, I, and, and my role changed over the years. It went from early on to where I might get the last out in the seventh inning and then pitch the eighth and ninth inning. So it was a, a very different role as far as being a closer during a lot of those years. It wasn't until probably the second half of my career until closers' roles were really more refined to just being one inning. Uh, so you had to be a little more um, – flexible, but uh, just knowing that there's a chance you're going to, that phone's going to ring, but you pretty much knew when the phone rang, who it's going to be for. And I, I just felt like, um, you know, getting myself ready and doing some, uh, you know, some warm up stuff before I even put a ball in my hand or put a glove on uh, to get my body physically ready to start my routine. And uh, it was a little different at home versus on the road. At home, we had a bullpen catcher who uh, was there my entire time in Kansas City. His name is Bill Sobe, and he knew exactly my routine. And, and uh, I've always felt like it's, you know, you want to keep things as simple as possible. I broke my mechanics down into three different elements. And I would, I would get my arm loose, you know, just do some rapid fire, get, you know, get a little blood flow in the arm. And then I would, I would do five on one of my elements, five on the other, and five on the other. So I'd, I'd break it down. And so it took me 15 pitches to work through all three element, elements of my delivery. And then it was just a, a matter of, you know, he would maybe set up uh, some on the inside, some on the outside. And sometimes I'd ask a, one of the other batters or maybe the bullpen coach uh, to stand in there in, you know, in the batter's box and, and kind of let me work a hitter. So when I went into a game, I was pretty much ready to go. I mean, I I, I probably wouldn't have even needed uh, the eight pitches you get to warm up to, to be ready to go. I, I You know, other than just getting acclimated to the mound, uh, I was ready to go once I hit that mound. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you backtrack for a second because – 
back in, was it 89? Is that when the trade occurred from the, the Royals to the Reds? 88, yes. 88. Um, you know, I want to ask you a question because it reminds me, one thing that's unique about baseball and probably sports in general, I remember I got promoted when I was in uh, Helena, I got promoted to Ogden. Ironically, the Brewers had two teams in the same league uh, that year, and I got promoted because the Ogden team was going to be uh, making the playoffs and they needed mm-hmm. some more relief help. But you don't get a chance to like say goodbye to people. It's like, hey, here's your bag. You're on a plane. We'll have your host family ma- uh, mail you everything, and you're you're on to Ogden tomorrow. You guys got a game. When that trade occurred, now for the baseball diehards out there, I want to I want to tell you, I think this is one of the more lopsided trades nobody ever talked about. <laughs> Jeff Montgomery gets yeah. traded to the Royals for Van Snyder. Jeff Montgomery goes on to be the all-time saves leader for the Kansas City Royals. If my research is correct, Van played in 19 games in the major leagues. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> so the Royals got the better half of the deal, but what was that? What did that feel like in the moment? Because you're playing for your hometown team, right? You grew up two hours outside of town. Yeah. What was it like when you got traded away? Well, it's very interesting because, you know, having grown up, um, you know, a huge Reds fan and having spent my five professional seasons in a Reds uniform, um, you know, I was excited to be a Red. But honestly, the 87 season in which I was called up in late July and I, you know, I pitched a few months in Cincinnati, I did not perform anywhere close to the level that one would expect to perform at and still be considered on, you know, a, a good chance of making the team the following year. So I didn't, I didn't feel like I was going to make the team in, um, in 88 with the Reds. Uh, my bags were packed, uh, ready to go to spring training camp. And it was just about maybe a week or two before spring training uh, spring training opened up. I get a phone call from the Reds farm director. His name was Chief Bender. And Chief said, hey, I got some, uh, you know, got some news for you. You were traded today to the Kansas City Royals. I was the happiest baseball player on earth because I think, hey, gosh, I'm going to a, you know, a team. I'd never heard of like Bud Black and Mark Gubaza and Charlie Lee Brandt and Steve Farr, all these guys who eventually became my teammates. I mean, I'd heard of Brett Saberhagen. I'd heard of Bo Jackson. I'd heard of uh, you know, George Brett and, you know, Dan Quisenberry, but I didn't know who a lot of these guys were. So I'm thinking, gosh, I got a good chance of making this ball club. So, you know, I got traded and I was very excited. I go to spring training uh, a week or two later. And one of the first people that I met was our general manager at the time, John Sherholtz. And, and John Sherholtz welcomed me to, to, you know, to the Royals said, happy to have you along. He said, Hey, we've looked at your numbers. Uh, you know, in the Reds organization it's both a reliever and a starter, we feel like you're more cut out to be a reliever. We're going to send you to Omaha uh, to, to be our closer in Omaha. So my bubble was burst, you know, really literally 20 minutes into my, uh, you know, my first day in a, in a Royals uniform because I thought I was going to make the club. And the general manager tells me I'm going to Omaha already. But uh, fortunately, I had a really good spring training camp. I kind of made it tough on them to send me down. Uh, I went down for a short period and then uh, I was called up late May, I believe it was, of 88. And I stuck in um, in Kansas City the last, you know, for the next 12 seasons. So I got a question I, I want to ask you. It's off the subject of of your career but I asked Joel Goldberg in, in, in the interview we did about the one player he wishes he would have broadcast for that he didn't. And he said, hands down, Bo Jackson. He said, people still talk about Bo Jackson today. You got a chance to play with him. What was it like, I mean, to play with a guy that is that much of an athletic specimen? Well, it was it was just amazing the things he was able to do. And every night when he put on a uniform, there was a decent chance that he was going to be doing something that you've never seen a baseball player do before. It didn't happen every night. Now, Bo, 
uh, he was actually becoming a really good player. He had enormous ceiling. He did some spectacular things in the early part of his career, but he was he was a, he was not a great outfielder at the time. I mean, he could throw a guy out from you know the warning track, but he could also misplay a ball. You know, a routine mm-hmm. you know uh, a routine single. He may play into a triple. Uh, you know, just because he would try to do things that he probably shouldn't try to do. But again, he was improving dramatically uh, as a baseball player. And uh, I could I could fill this entire you know show with Bo Jackson stories. And one I'll share that I think is pretty cool is uh, we were playing in Yankee Stadium against the Yankees, and Deion Sanders was on the Yankees. And Bo hit three home runs in this game. Bo hit three consecutive home runs in his three plate appearances. Deion Sanders comes up later in the game, and Deion hits a little flare in the right center field. And Bo comes from center field, and he dives like Superman to catch this baseball. And it just goes under his glove, and the ball rolls to the warning track, and Deion's so fast, so he obviously scampers all the way uh, inside the park home run. So, uh, you know, two multi-sport guys, you know, are, 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 are making, you know, big headlines during the game. We end up winning a baseball game. So now Bo, as a result of that attempted catch, he separates his left shoulder. And he goes on to Sable List for six weeks. Now, six weeks later, he comes back. I remember it's a Sunday afternoon. We're playing a Seattle Mariners and Randy Johnson's on the mound. And the first pitch that Bo Jackson saw after six weeks on the DL, he hit at 452 feet for his fourth consecutive plate appearance with four home runs. And, uh, you know, to hit a, hit a ball off Randy Johnson to start with is, is, is an accomplishment to do it after six weeks on the DL. I mean, just uncanny <laughs> yeah. abilities. Yeah. I mean, if there's one guy you probably don't want to face after a six week layoff, it's Randy Johnson. Exactly. Uh, but I, and then you, and thinking it's keeping it with the Mariners. I still remember that highlight of Harold Reynolds rounding third and Bo's picking the ball up at the warning track and Reynolds think he's, he's got it easily. Yep. And literally from the fly, Bo Jackson throws that ball, throws him out from the warning track. Absolutely insane. Yes. So, it was. Let's go back to your career, because I think one thing that makes you unique, too, as a closer is, you know, you see the guys now who are closing, throwing 100 miles an hour, you know, and they're just coming with the gas. Maybe they've got a curveball once in a while, but they're coming, you know, Mariano Rivera, one pitch. You actually had like a four pitch repertoire as a closer, which is very unique. Why? What? How do you think, you know, where, again, most people appear view closers as that one go-to pitch, one pitch guy that I'm going to come in, you know, exactly what's coming. How do you think having that four-pitch repertoire really helped your relief career, your closing career? I think the ability to throw all four of my pitches in any count, it it was somewhat of an equalizer. Uh, I threw a lot of fastballs by guys that were, you know, 90 miles an hour, 88 to 90 miles an hour. I I could throw a ball by a guy because he's got to protect against my slider. Uh, you know, it might be three, one, and I know a guy sitting on fastball and I can throw my slider. It looks like a strike. You know, he swings, he pops it up, he grounds it out or he misses it. Now I'm three and two. And he's thinking, well, what's coming next? And, you know, I can throw my fastball three, two, uh, middle part of the plate. And, and because he's thinking breaking ball in the back of his mind, suddenly I, I can throw the ball by a guy or I can lock him up because he feel, feels like, Hey, he threw a slider three, one, he's going to throw a three, two. And it just that ability to throw all of my pitches uh, in in various counts and situations, that was my forte. Essentially, variety uh, had to surprise him, trick him, whatever you want to say. But um, it was fun doing it. I mean, I, there were times I would I would have I would have a guy miss a pitch, and I'd have to almost contain myself from laughing. I was so happy and so excited that 
you heard from my 88 fastball, I just threw by, you know, Jeffrey Leonard, uh, Jeffrey Leonard or Chili Davis or, you know, some really good hitters at the, at the time. Uh, but having them thinking about one pitch or the other, I always felt if I hadn't thinking about two different pitches, I've got a huge advantage. And well, uh, I think that, what you just said is important because in a, in an era today where it's all about gas, right? You see every, every relief pitcher that's coming in these days seems to be throwing 96 plus. You, you, you talked about a very overlooked part of, as a guy myself who threw maybe 90, when you have good off-speed stuff, that 90 can quickly look like 95 or 96. Oh, for sure. And, and you know, the other difference was, as you mentioned, you know, doing TV now, um, no, I know, you know, the, the scouting reports, I know the, all the metrics on almost every pitcher, you know, that we play against and the players that are on our team in Kansas City. Uh, it's rare to see a pitcher that does not throw north of 95 miles an hour. I mean, it's rare in today's game. Now, in 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 my era, I mean, there were like a handful of guys. I mean, there was obviously Nolan Ryan and Roger Clemens and Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson and you know maybe a handful of other guys that threw 95 plus. But there were nowhere near the amount of players back then that throw as hard as players do today. So um, you know that. You know, if I if I could if I could find a way to get uh, an extra mile or two uh, with life, uh, that was great. But I didn't feel like I needed it. Um, one thing that I was was taught really early in my career is actually my second season with Royals, 1989. I was in spring training camp and my catcher, a new catcher who was an old timer named Bob Boone. Uh, he had come over from the Angels to be on the Royals team. And uh, he was catching me in spring training right right toward the end of camp. And uh I, I, I was going to pitch the seventh inning and maybe the eighth inning. I come in, I'm in a dugout. He said, what do you want to work on today? And I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, well, here's the deal. He goes, your stuff's pretty good. Your command's pretty good. Neither one are great. He goes, but I think I can make them great for you. I'm like, okay, how are you going to do that? He goes, I'm going to set up right in the middle of the plate. He goes, I don't want you to worry about the inside corner, the outside corner. I want you to worry about the bottom corner of the strike zone. So in other words, the bottom of the, of, of, of the, of, of the zone. And he set up right down the middle. I ended up going 10 batters. I got nine batters out. I probably threw 30 to 35 pitches, and it was the easiest three outs, I, or easiest 10 outs, uh, or I'm sorry, nine outs that I ever got. And it just gave me that confidence now that, hey, I don't have to be perfect. Um, and a lot of guys pitch backwards. A lot of guys throw that really nasty pitch on the first you know, uh, pitch of the appearance, and, um, and, and now they're down one ball, no strikes. And, and they, they kind of pitch backwards. And, uh, I, I, I pitch backwards a lot where I would throw, you know, the, the really, you know, the, the get me over pitch early instead of late when I'm behind in the count. So, um, just setting pitches up and, and, and understanding your stuff. And, and I think experience is so important. Uh, you learn that you don't have to be, uh, laser sharp with regard to your command. If you're down in the strike zone, and uh, I just felt like that experience really went a long way in, 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 in as far as longevity is concerned. Yeah, I remember a conversation. My, my head coach in, in college was uh, Jerry Augustine, who spent a few years pitching at the major league level with the Milwaukee Brewers. And he used to tell us all the time when he was pitching and, you know, going up against the Yankees and teams like that. Some, sometimes the best thing he could do is take his fastball and take about three or four miles off of it and just mm-hmm. laser it on the lower, lower part of the, of the, uh, of the strike zone. And, get guys to ground out, pop out, get ahead. He goes, it's not about hitting the corners all the time. Sometimes you just have to lay off, hit the bottom of the strike zone and everything will take care of itself. That's, that's great advice. Let me ask you this because you, it's rare today too. You see closers 
who have long careers, right? Some guy may show up for a year, 40, 50 saves. Uh, the way they, I feel like the way they measure saves has changed a little bit too. What counts as a save versus what may have counted 20, 25 years ago. But guys don't last very long. You're, you're, you defined a closer role by having a successful career as a closer for 12, 13 plus years. What do you think separates, if you had to guess, the guy, you know, somebody in your role, a Mariano Rivera role, these guys who are career closers versus the closers we often see today that have an awesome one, two, maybe three year run. And then all of a sudden you see them fade as quickly as they came about. Well, I think it's the inability to throw uh, secondary pitches more than anything. I think the guys that have the outstanding arms and they're, you know, they're, everything's perfect, you know, during that year, that two, when they're racking up 40 to 50 saves. And then they lose a little bit off their fastball and they don't have the ability uh, to go to off pitches when they need to go to off pitches. I think that's probably why you see guys, um, you know, have those really big years and they fall off very dramatically and sometimes are never able to come back. And unless they make some adjustments as far as, uh, you know, they may have to add a split finger fastball. They may have to add a change up. If, if, If they have the ability to add, then I think they can find a way to be successful. But I think just, Regardless of the velocity, uh, you lose a little bit. Obviously, uh, you know, father time is undefeated. There's no one that's going to pitch until they're, you know, 70 years old. So every year in your career, uh, after you hit that peak, you're going to start to lose just a little bit. And uh, as you start to lose a little bit, if you can't adjust, uh, and not just pitchers, but I think all players, uh, you have to make the adjustments if you're going to be able to stay, you know, at that same level. So if you had to, Jeff, wrap up your career in a statement or two, you know, again, think about here you were in Ohio, 5'11", 170 pounds, didn't throw 95 miles an hour. There's 5'9 guys today that throw 98, 99. And now we look at the back end whenever and when all was said and done, 304 saves, all-time saves leader for the uh, in Kansas City Royals history. In the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame, three-time All-Star, Fireman of the Year uh, Award when you uh, had its 45 saves. Like, you had one phenomenal career. If you had to wrap it up in a statement or two, what would you say allowed you to have the career you had? Uh, hard work and consistency. I think uh, a manager, what he wants from a player, he wants to know what he's going to get on a daily basis. And then he wants to know what he's going to get on a seasonal basis. And I think what I was fortunate to be able to do was work really hard um, and be that consistent performer. And you'll be the same guy, whether I I struck out the side last night or I gave up a walk-off home run. Today, when I went on the mound, that manager felt comfortable that I'm going to give him three outs and, and hopefully be shaking our teammates' hands. Yep. I like that. The full, t- uh, full-time handshaker. I like that. So let's quickly parlay into your broadcasting career. Cause now you're, you're part of Royals live. You do the pre post game, pre in game, post game, um, broadcasting for the Kansas City Royals. You know, how does, how is it watching a game now broadcasting it versus they're standing on the mound in the ninth inning? Well, it's totally different as far as the, you know, the performance, let's call it. Uh, live televisions, it, to me, it's a lot more difficult than getting a big league hitter out. <laughs> but just like, like I mentioned with, uh, you know, with, with playing, uh, experience becomes very important. Uh, I describe live television as like getting in a NASCAR and they give you the keys for the first time and tell you to go on a track and drive 200 miles an hour. And you're scared to death. I mean, it's just coming at you so fast. You don't know what's hitting you. And then 
you know, you make it through, you know, you're, you drive it around the track, you know, 20 laps and you, you, you turn off the car and you, you know what, I didn't crash. I'm still alive. And, you know, maybe I didn't hit the corners right, but I, I'm still alive. And then the next time you do it, you get a little better. The next time you do it a little, and then suddenly driving 200 miles an hour kind of feels normal. And, uh, that's the way broadcasting was for me. And, uh, I just felt like, um, I'm fortunate I didn't get fired after my first, you know, a few attempts at it because I felt like I was so terrible at doing it, but they stuck with me. They allowed me to drive that car around the track a few more times and, and get more comfortable with 200 miles an hour. And, uh, and I think now the biggest thing is, and some great advice I got early in my career was, uh, from our previous color analyst, who was an analyst when I was uh, playing for the Royals named Paul Splitorf. Split told me that, you know, there are guys who do what you do, uh, former players, they just show up and they, they try to wing it. Uh, he said, never fall into that category because it will show. So I felt like preparing and over preparing, to be honest, uh, was the way that I was going to find it uh, to be the best. And I, I still live by that today. Uh, when I go into a broadcast, I'm ready for that broadcast. It's just like when I went into a baseball game, I knew that I'd done everything mentally and physically to prepare myself to be the best pitcher I could be. Same thing with broadcasting. I think same thing with so many different, you know, professions and uh, areas in our life. Uh, you know, if you work hard and you're prepared, uh, there are going to be times when it doesn't come off the way that you wanted it to. You're going to make some mistakes, but uh, at least you can look yourself in the mirror and, and, and tell yourself, hey, that was maybe not my best performance, but I, I'm going to be better tomorrow. That's awesome. You know, and Joel Goldberg, that's one thing he said about you. He said that the best thing about Jeff and broadcasting alongside him is you take the same approach that you did when you were playing for the Royals as you do in the broadcast booth. It's showing up, being consistent every day. Well, that's uh, to me important. And uh, I think if you, if you find a way to um, put yourself in a position to do something you really, really enjoy doing, it makes it a lot easier to prepare for it. It makes it a lot easier to uh, to go in and, 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 and do that. And I have to say this about Joel Goldberg. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better partner. Here's a guy that, uh, you know, when you have your bad days, he picks you up and, you know, he helps along the way, and, you know, as a, as a former athlete, there was no training, you know, it's like when I said, you put in, put yourself in that NASCAR, you know, I'd never driven a NASCAR 200 miles an hour before. And the same thing when you go on live TV, I'd never done that. I didn't have any education or training in doing that. So, uh, just having somebody like Joel and I mentioned Paul Splitorf along the way to help get you through those bumpy roads. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they were just, uh, very instrumental in the fact that I've been able to do this now for over a dozen years. And Splitoff's another, uh, Splitoff's another great pitcher in Royals history. And, yeah. and so, okay, one more question. Then I'm, then we're going to go into a, a quick set of rapid fire, quick fire questions for you to wrap this thing up. So if somebody won, do you think, uh, for the diehards, uh, listening and the diehard baseball fans, are you? Uh, do you foresee that you're going to be able to do broadcasting live in the booth at games this year, unlike what we experienced in 2020? I think it's going to be a lot like 2020. I think we'll be in the booth live for home games. I think we'll be in the booth uh, doing it from video when the team's on the road. I think they're still going to be very protective of our players and just make sure that there's no chance that uh, anyone from the outside, regardless of you know their affiliation, uh, has any uh, chance to you know kind of disrupt the season. Uh, but I think the deeper we get in the season, the better chance that we may be getting closer to being back to normal where our broadcast crews may travel to the city where the team's doing the game. Awesome. And and my last question that I, wa I wanted to ask you was for that high school pitcher listening in or that college pitcher at a mid-major program like a Marshall or a UW Milwaukee, who is five foot 10, five foot 11, doesn't throw 98 miles an hour. And everybody is telling them that, yeah, 
it's going to be very hard for you to make it to the next level. What advice would you give that kid right now? I would say they are correct. It's going to be very, it's going to be more difficult than the guy that's six, five and, you know, has the, the, the bionic arm. Uh, but uh, do one thing every day to become a better player and about anything is possible. Uh, I'm not saying everything's possible, but about anything that's uh, uh, feasible, uh, you can accomplish if you work hard at doing it. I think more importantly is, is knowing yourself, find, finding ways to really maximize your strengths. So I, I think that's the advice I would give someone. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's the same stuff. I, I, I coach insurance advisors today, and that's the same advice I give them. Know who you are, have self-awareness and embrace that version of you and just step into it and give it everything you can every day. That's all you can ask for. Yep. So let's wrap up, Jeff. Five quick fire questions. The uh, first answer that comes to your head is all, all, all I need to hear, but you might have some good ones right off the bat. So toughest batter you ever faced? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two. Uh, Harold Baines is in the category of the, of, of, of the toughest because I faced him my entire career. The toughest in a short period for about five years was Don Mattingly. Mm, two left-handed hitters with sweet swings. Yeah, yeah. those those are tough guys to, to, to take out for sure. Um, toughest crowd to close out a game in front of? It, was, uh, it used to be called Jacobs Field in Cleveland. When they had those guys in the '90s, you know the Tomes and the Alomars, and you know all the all uh, Albert Bells and Kenny Loftons, all those guys that would they they had like 500 consecutive sellouts. That was the toughest place to get the last three outs of the game. That's awesome. I could imagine that, and I think they even had the guys beating the drums, and yeah, <laughs> it, it was uh, chaos. Okay, bottom of the ninth, two outs, full count, bases loaded. What pitch are you going to? Uh, what's the count? Full count. Slider. Slatter, like it. Okay, that's confidence right there. I don't. Did you have entrance music when you were playing? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> I love music, and um, I loved Elton John. And one of my favorite songs was Rocket Man. So they asked me, you know, my favorite song is Rocket Man. So they started playing Rocket Man when I'm coming in games. My wife tells me she goes, people are going to fall asleep listening to Rocket Man when you come into a game. <laughs> so uh, I, I changed it to. Um, ACDC th Thunderstruck. Oh, yeah. Can't, doesn't get better than that. Nice. I, I really like that one. All right. Last question. Now let's flip it to your broadcasting career. What's your favorite stadium besides Kaufman? What is your favorite stadium to broadcast a game from today? Probably Pittsburgh. Mm. The, the views from, uh, they, they, they really kind of messed up the press box in Pittsburgh. They put the press box like on the very, very, very upper deck. I mean, it's as high as up, it's on top of the stadium, right? But you look out over the ball, you know, over the ballpark, you have to see binoculars. So you see the, you know, the numbers on the outfielders, but, uh, just the view and the Vista, uh, from looking behind home plate out over the, you know, Allegheny river and, you know, the, the, the skyline in Pittsburgh, it's pretty cool. That's yeah. I, I've never visited, but that's definitely on the bucket list because I've heard nothing but magical things about it. So, well, Jeff, this was uh, very, very appreciated. I'm so grateful you took the time to be here today. Um, if you guys, anybody listening in, I don't, again, if you're a young athlete, you're, uh, you're in business, whatever, take this advice from Jeff. The reason I wanted to have Jeff on is he was an undersized pitcher, as was I. Everybody told him it would be very difficult for him to have massive success. But at the end of the day, he ended up a Royal Hall of Famer, all-time saves leader, three-time All-Star, on and on and on. And most, I think most impressive, Jeff, 700 appearances <laughs> in Major League games, which is absolutely insane. So, Jeff, one more time, thank you. Andy, you're very welcome. Anytime I can uh, you know, be a part of your show, I'd love to do it. 
I thank you. And guys for listening, and you know what happens when confidence and clarity collide, max, massive action happens. Go make it happen today. Shift your mindset. Thank you for listening into this week's episode. And if you know of any other high achievers like yourself that you think would benefit from this episode, please do me a favor. Please share this with them. You would help me go a long way in sharing this message, getting this message out to as many people as possible. I'd be forever grateful. And if you really found benefit from today's episode, do me a favor, go subscribe to the podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a great review. It always helps to make sure that this podcast is getting in front of us as many ears and eyeballs as possible. Thank you.